Hey everyone, welcome back to the Improv TX Comedy Network. If this is your first time checking out the podcast network, we appreciate it. Please head over to your favorite podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or iTunes, and give the Improv TX Comedy Network a like. And just a reminder, the Improv TX Comedy Network is live on YouTube with all your favorite comedians on the improv stage. All links can be found in the description. And with that, on to the podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Act Out from Open Mic to the Big Stage. Comedians tell us how stories are made. This is Doc. Today, I'm with a very special guest. This guy is a legend in the game. He has been working for 35 years in the game. I'm telling you, I'm so excited. The first comedian I ever saw on stage was Shucky Ducky. I went to an open mic. I was sitting there and somebody goes, all right, here comes Shucky Ducky. And you got on stage and you crushed it. Well, I knew who Shucky Ducky was, actually, because of Herman Cain when he said Shucky Ducky quack quack when he was running for president. And so I knew about you, but I'd never seen you before. So it was the Arlington Improv. And then you popped up on that stage. You crushed it. You did your Samuel L. Jackson joke. You killed it. The whole crowd was like, oh, my God, that's hilarious. And you said whenever you went up there, you're like, everyone needs to practice or something like that. Right. The more stage time you get, the better you come at it. Yeah. So been in the game 35 years, been across the country. Have you went international, too? Yes. I've been to Spain, Japan, Italy, Europe. I've, yeah, I've been around. Uh, very nice. Well, yes, we are talking with the legendary Shucky Ducky today. Shucky, how are you, sir? I'm fine. Cecil Armstrong? That's my government name. That's where I, I'm <laughs> born in the hospital. <laughs> That's the government name. <laughs> so, yeah, let's talk about it. Where were you born and raised? You're from here, right? I'm from Dallas. I'm from Dallas, born in Oak Cliff. Well, you know, my first school that I went to was in South Dallas, Colonial Elementary School in South Dallas. And then I think that went uh, half the semester there. And then we moved to Oak Cliff and went to N.W. Harley. There was a school that named after a black guy. I lived in uh, Oak Cliff in the bottom, most of, most of all I'll clip most of all of my life, you know. And you have jokes about that, too, about growing up in a raggedy house and just, yeah, you know, you're the oldest of six children. Right. That, that wasn't no joke. That was true. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't joking about that. Yeah. You know. It's hilarious. If you go online to Real Shucky Ducky on YouTube, you can check out all the clips. You can check out the comedy. It's amazing. So what was it like growing up? The oldest of six children. Did you have to kind of be the father figure in the household? I had to be the father figure, but I was the scariest kid. I, 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 <laughs> I was trying to be the oldest kid. Everybody was jumping on me. I was running from bullies and, and everything. But my brother, my second brother named Kenneth, he was terrified. He, he can whoop everybody in the neighborhood. you know. <laughs> but I, I was the oldest child, and I had to really take care of the rest of the kids. I know that there were father figures kind of in your life, throughout your life. But there was one like main one, I believe so. But like you pretty much took care of everything, right? Yeah, I took care of most of everything because uh, uh, my mother was a single parent. She had a boyfriend, I say a boyfriend, but she had three kids by him, and his name was Jerry Lee. I learned a lot from him because, you know, we did construction work. He, he built inlets for the streets, so he taught us how to do that. But he had a work ethic, you know, where he get out and just work, 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 hustle, 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 hustle. So I watched a lot of stuff from him. So what was it like growing up in Oak Cliff? Like, were you the funny kid? Were you the... No, 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 no. Shy? No, no I was very shy. Yeah. Very shy, scared of girls. <laughs> <laughs> All of that. But because my mother was a single parent, and sometimes we stayed with our aunt, so it was kind of like a blended family. My mom was the poorest out of all her siblings. Uh, all her siblings had about 
two kids, no more than three. My mama had six. So she, she broke the mold. <laughs> and so she was always asking for money and always looking for some money. And then, you know, the rest of the family didn't want to get it. They called her begging Joe because she was, <laughs> she was begging all the time and all like, like that. So I wanted to do something, you know, with my life to be able to get her out of that situation, you know. So I, I dreamed of being a, Star Jackson Five came out. I wanted to be a part of that, but James Brown was really the guy that I really wanted to be like to be a singer because maybe they can get the girls and get me out of this shyness, you know. And then plus have my mom, you know, get out of this poverty situation. So comedy wasn't even on the table at that. Comedy point. was not even on the table. But you were musically inclined. You were in the band, right? In school, yeah, I was, yeah. I, was, I played drums in the band in high school. There you go. In junior high school, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. I went to begin the band in Oliver Wendell Holmes, and then when I got over to Roosevelt. High school in Oak Cliff, I uh, got in the band. I wasn't really a good drummer, but I was really learning. I was steady learning, so I grabbed the cymbals. So I played the cymbals for about two years. But I tell you what, I was a star with the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> the place, bam, 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 bam. I was on it, brother. <laughs> It's so funny because I can relate to that. I did the same thing, and I crashed those symbols together as hard as I possibly could. It was that's hilarious. And when I was in high school, I watched watch Grambling. You know, Grambling. We were all imitating Grambling because Grambling was one of the biggest bands and most show bands. And so the Grambling cymbal players came off the field on their backs playing the cymbals. So we got a chance to play South Oak Cliff. South Oak Cliff was our rivalry. And we got to play South Oak Cliff. And I was out there playing them cymbals. Bam, 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 <laughs> bam, bam. And then it was got time for us to come off that field. Bam, I hit them cymbals on the, and got on my back. Boy, I was a star. And one of the guys had the drums. He went around me in a circle. And, man, it, I was a star with a whole month that they had that game with South Oak Cliff playing those cymbals. I was a star. That's awesome. Is that your first taste of entertaining? Or were you entertaining at a young age? Well, you know, Easter speeches, you know, at the church. So I was known for a good speaker. I did the oratorical contest in elementary school. The teacher said, "Yo, you got a good voice. She liked my voice. But I got to the finals, but I didn't get a chance to do the speech because somebody else would beat me out on that. I lost confidence in my, really, really lost confidence in myself to then finish the speech. And somebody else did the speech, you know. But she said, I don't know why you didn't learn that speech. You got the better voice. You got the better presentation. <laughs> I don't know why, you know. But because of the insecurities I had within myself, I always put myself down. I always just gave up. I didn't say gave up, but I just didn't have that confidence. Why do you think that was? I don't know what it was. And sometimes I suffer from that to still to the day. Mm. I don't know what it is. Sometimes I can sabotage my whole situation. I can have a good situation. And sometimes this sabotage just comes in and just destroys it. But I've been listening to this guy, Patrick mm -hmm. David. Man, I've been listening to him. And a lot of the stuff that he's talking about, you know, I've experienced it. And now I'm trying to get, gain that confidence to do it. I mean, I got the confidence. I was going to say, you've got the confidence. I got the confidence, <laughs> but I just got to follow, I got to follow through. Mm -hmm. I need to get that follow through and to keep on striving and make it bigger than what it is. Because the Shucky Ducky thing came by so surprisingly and it took a life of its own. And I, I don't think I was prepared for it, you know. But it, it took a life of its own. We're definitely going to get into that. I want to talk about real quick when you met your biological father and your half-brother and you got into the company with him, the party company. What was that all about? Well, my mom told me, she said, I want you to meet somebody. I said, okay. So she took me to this parking garage. In this parking garage, this guy came out. She said, uh, this is your father. I kind of knew from the gossip around in the family that the guy named that I carry is not my father. You know, so when I met him, I said, wow, 
Then he said, oh, he looked just like Carl, which is my half-brother. He looked just like Carl. I said, okay, okay. So he wanted me to call. And my daddy's name was Willie. And so I said, okay, I, I want to meet him. Because, I, you know, you get to, to find your father to have that connection because you want to know what type of personality he was. You know, what can you do to grow up? Because I think uh, I went to the, it was like the band director. I kind of like clinged on to the band director as a father figure, you know, because I didn't know him over father. But then, like, just about when I was getting ready to graduate from school, my mother introduced me to my father. And that was a great connection. I did a lot of those things with him because my daddy was a promoter. He liked to promote. And my little, my stepbrothers liked to promote. And so uh, he got in trouble. Him and one of his friends fell out. They fell out in a, in a business deal. I was working for the bus company at the time, cleaning buses. Not driving buses this time. I was cleaning buses. And I told him, I said, hey, man, I'll go in business with you. I'll learn how to do the party thing. And so he taught me how to you know, give parties and promote. And with partying and promoting, brought girls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole new different uh, uh, thing. I was scared of girls, but then now that I'm in the limelight partying, girls. Yes. You know, and yeah. all that type of stuff. So that was a you know, great experience to see my uh, biological father. And I stayed with him for, uh, well, my grandma, I stayed with him for a little bit just to try to get that connection. I mean, that's awesome. And then the party thing, that went for a little while, the party company? It went from 77 to 79. Oh, wow. So two years of partying hard. Right. Well, learning that being in that limelight. Now, now when you say party, you didn't get any drugs or anything like that? Oh, no, no, no. I tried some weed or something like that. <laughs> I wasn't good at that either. <laughs> I, think, I think one time I was smoking some weed and they was passing it around and it got down to the real little bitty part. And I was sucking it so hard, I sucked the fire down my throat. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> every time I pass, I make sure that I don't have a big one. <laughs> uh, so you got out of the party business because you found religion again, right? Well, I grew up in the church. Church of God in Christ, that's all we did was church. And getting into that party life, the girls was coming. It was like a fast life. But I feel like something was missing. I said, something, something definitely missing. But... I had a, a, a epiphany about, uh, you know, black people. It was like, I say, why are we so down on the bottom? You know, why are we on the bottom all the time? It's like, so I want to get to the bottom of the truth of what life is and what life is about. So I wanted to get down to that bottom. So I started going to church. You know, I was going to be in church strictly. I was going to strictly be down. I was going to dedicate it and be strictly in the church. So I went deep, 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 deep into the church yeah. and started learning. From Church of God in Christ, I left and I went and got into Baptist Church. I did a little Islam, but not that much. You know, I didn't do that much. But then I got into Buddhism, and that was in 1980. Now, before you got into Buddhism, you became a pastor, right? Well, yeah. When I got into Baptist Church, they ordained me. Well, I got my license ordained to be a preacher. Not a pastor, but a preacher. Did you do that for long? No, I didn't do that long. I think about I did about three sermons. <laughs> Found that I ain't gonna be able to make that. As, I don't think I'm gonna make it as a preacher. <laughs> I'll make it as a preacher. So you found Buddhism after that? Yeah, I, it was seeking Buddhism. I, I was working for a grocery store, and this lady, I was taking her groceries out. She was Japanese, and she said, "Are you happy?" You know, I'm saying, "Yeah, I'm happy," but I was happy on the outside, but crying on the inside because me and my wife had, had separated. 
So it was this big separation. And my life was going all kinds of ways because I didn't know what I was going to try to accomplish. And I always wanted to be a star or be something important. But it wasn't going like I was wanted to go. So she told me about this Buddhism. Well, she didn't tell Buddhism. She said, I want you to come to a meeting. So I go to this meeting and I see these people chanting in front of this scroll. And the harmony with all the different, it was a diverse crowd, black, white, Spanish, it was just a diverse crowd. I just loved that harmony. And I said, oh, this is good. And so at that time, I was getting ready to go to Chicago. So I didn't join in Dallas, but I joined in Chicago when I left to go to Chicago because I got a job or offer to sell advertising for a radio station, WXOL in Chicago. And they said they was going to give me three months to get myself together. And I didn't make a sale in a month and let me go. Oh, wow. You know, but that's the reason why I went to Chicago was to make it into the radio. You didn't have a job or anything and you're in Chicago. And No, I didn't have a job in Chicago. I had the, the promise of working in sales for WXOL radio station. And so I was trying to learn how to sell a radio thing. I got fired before it panned out. But what I did, though, I had some money left, and I went and got me some dishwashing liquid, a little brush, and a little tile, and I started washing cars. I went to this service station that was on 51st and Cornell. I went to the service station and asked the man, could I wash some cars? I said, y'all the mechanic, y'all fix the cars. Don't the people like to have a clean car when they pick the car up? He said, yes. I was charging $5 at that time. So every third car, I give them the five. So I make 10 get them five, you know, 10, five, 10, five, like that. And so that's what I did. I started a little car wash business. Wow. You do this over and over again. If you're in a tight spot, you find a hustle and you make it work. I know that recently, and we'll get to that, but in, during COVID, you did the same thing. Right. So, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. I, I think it's amazing. So how did you end up coming back to DFW then? Well, I had stacked up some money and then I was staying with my sister there. And so she... Wanted some more money. <laughs> so I said, let me give me a plane ticket and get up out of here before I be, be broke and all that type of stuff. So I left because I said, well, if I start this car wash here in Chicago, I can start me one in Dallas. And so that's what I did. Brought it back to Dallas. And this is about the time. When were you driving the bus? See, when I came back, I came back in 81. So I was still trying to find myself. So I knew I could wash the cars. So what I did was get me more business. I went around to painting body shops asking them, do they want you know get the car service? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I got this car that somebody had threw a brick over a bridge and the lady got killed in the car. Oh, and they asked me to clean the car. Oh, wow. And so I cleaned the car real, real good, you know, got the blood stains and stuff out of the car, did good. So I started going around different other paint body shops so I could pick up some more business. And so I went to this paint body shop off of Marvin D. Love Freeway in South Oak Cliff, and they needed a wash guy because they had a lot of cars in-house. They needed somebody to wash the cars there. I said, yeah, I took that job. So I had steady income coming in and started working for the painting body shop. So how did that transition over to cleaning the buses? Did you do that before you left for Well, Chicago? I did. The cleaning the buses came back in 1977. Okay, so you were doing that way before. Yeah, I did way before that. I okay. did that in 77 because I, I was going to college. The time I got out of high school, I went to college at Bishop College in Dallas. And so it wasn't working out too good because, uh, <laughs> you know, we needed money. We needed money. And then so when I applied for this cleaning up the bus, I got hired. So I said, forget college. I'm going <laughs> to go, go work make me some money. Yeah, there you go. And so that was in 77. And then from 77, that's when I was working with my brother doing the partying thing. And then I got to going up in the church. So I left that and went to start doing the gospel in 79. 
And then I'm going to tell you what they also did. Because I was doing the partying thing, like from 77 to 78, and then I stopped. I was so used to partying and doing the DJing thing that I went to a radio station, KSKY, and you could buy airtime at KSKY. So I could buy 30 minutes for, I think it was $15. Oh, wow. And then I think it was $30 for 30 minutes, something, something around, that, it's around that area. But I started me a little gospel called Half Hour Gospel Power. Cecil Armstrong, the gospel DJ. Oh, wow. Half cool. Hour Gospel Power. Right on. How long did you do that? Not long. I mean, I'm a jack of all trade, a master yeah. of none. I'm telling you, you <laughs> but you've done so much. It's, it's, I, it's, within a short period of time. Yeah. Because I was all over the place. I, and, that, and I tell people, if you want to be successful, you got to find one thing, stick with that one thing, and stay with it in and out and make it work. Yeah. Because the time I get my uh, uh, back against the wall, if something ain't working for me, I jump and ship and do something else. That was my MO. It's, and like I said, you did so much. The radio show, did that help boost your confidence then? Because this is all before comedy. This is all before comedy. Yeah. yeah, it boosted it a little bit. I mean, it, it boosted it a little bit. It did. You know, because I'm just, I'm a type of person, when I'm interested in something, I'll go out and try to find the nuance of what makes it work. You know, when I was in school, this is what I always tell people, I say, if a person brought you a business card, you say, oh, they're successful. <laughs> they got a business card. Then you find that you can get them printed up for <laughs> printed out thousand of them with your name on it. Right. People saw something with your name on it. Then I was fascinated by music. I produced a record. Yeah. And I went behind the scenes of how the record was made. Then there's no mystery anymore. It doesn't fascinate anymore because I know the secret of what what it is. Right. But when you're seeing your name on something and something that you accomplished, you feel, oh, I'm successful. Yeah. I'm successful. Same way with, uh, when I got into radio, television, and all that type of stuff. It was the same thing. Getting behind the scenes. I'm more of a behind-the-scenes type of guy than in front of the scenes. And Chuck and Ducky put me in front, but I wasn't trying to really, really be in yeah. front. Yeah. So let's talk about how you got into that because you've been saying Chuck Ducky for years. For that years. Was, that was just kind of your thing, right? Right. I've been saying the phrase ever since 82. I was saying the phrase. Where did it come from? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just I just say it and the people will laugh. I just have the awareness that people will laugh at it. I really can't really tell you how it really, I, the phrase came about. But it all go back to the Buddhism type of thing, okay? In 1984, when Jesse Jackson was running for president of the United States, Walter Mondale and Gary Hart was going at it. And Mondale told Gary Hart, where is the beef? Uh, <laughs> and it, was, it was kind of funny at the time. So that phrase was everywhere. Where is the beef? Where is the beef? So in 84, I was practicing Buddhism and we was going to Japan. We wanted to go to Japan oh, to, awesome. the, to, see the, to see the Great Shrine, to go to Mount Fuji. So I needed some money. I didn't have any money. So I thought maybe I could sell some t-shirts with where's the beef on it and raise that money since the phrase was popular. And then so uh, the guy told me I couldn't do that because Wendy's had the copyright to it. So I was reading an article in the paper about who came up with the campaign for it. So I called the advertising agency and they told me to call Wendy's International. And then Wendy's International told me to call Pro Sports, who had the license agreement to sell where's the beef t-shirts all across the country. They sent me a contract, and they showed me the promotional package of what they did. They had, a, they had bumper stickers. They had mugs. They had nightgowns. And then they had, in the memo, they said they're going to come up with a country and western song called Where's the Beef? You know, I said, okay. And then so Clara got in trouble with Wendy's for doing a spaghetti commercial. She did the same phrase on a spaghetti commercial. Oh, oh okay. Oh, wow. And then they had going, it was going back with legal jargon, and they sued her or whatever they did. But anyway, the campaign kind of like died down. Mm -hmm. And so that was in 84. Then uh, in 85, like I said, I like promoting. I had a friend of mine named Hoagie Starr, 
who wrote a rap record, a little LP, a long-extended play, called Get Live in 85. So I got behind him and started marketing his LP, pushing that LP because it was hot at the time. And I said, well, we only got a short period of time because 85 is going to be over. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be over at 85. We got to do something else. So at the end of 85, we finished that up. We sold about, we didn't say that many records, but we sold some. So we got in the room in December of 85 and said, what's going to be our next project? And they said, well, we're going to come up in the mix in 86. That was their album. I said, I tell you what, y'all do in the mix in 86. I said, uh... I'm going to do the shucky-ducky thing. I think I'll make this phrase work. Let's do the shucky-ducky thing. I say, Hoagie, won't you write me a, a rap record? You have me with your 85. Won't you write me a rap record? So I put him on that. I had a friend of mine who was a graphic artist who was practicing Buddhism with me. I asked him, come up with me a duck with a new, you know, with some glasses because I'm a bus driver and put the bus driver salute with the duck so that we pass each other. We always salute each other. So put that in there with the glasses. So he did that. Then I had another girl come up with a dance. And then while she was doing all of that, I had a big party getting set up in 86, in March of 86, called March Madness was coming to Dallas in 86. So I had a big old big party. And then so I was talking to a girl on the phone, and the girl say, what do shucky ducky mean anyway? <laughs> and then my mama say, instead of saying shit, say shucky ducky, you know. And so my mom is a type of person who likes to look up words. So me and my mom got the dictionary. We started looking up the words. So we looked up the word shucks. Shucks was an expression that represents disappointment, okay? We got that one. Then we looked up the word ducky. Ducky is the Irish term for excitement, pleasure. Then so we said, okay, mom, let's do it like this. We say shucky ducky can mean disappointment or excitement. So we wrote the definition. Shucky ducky is the phrase that means disappointment or excitement. Instead of cursing when you stomp your toe, we say shucky ducky. You see a fine girl, a guy you like, you say, oh, shucky ducky. <laughs> it's hot, new, and fun to say. Use shucky ducky in your vocabulary today. And we put out 10,000 flyers. I had 10,000 flyers printed up with that definition on it. And every concert that came to Dallas, I would put it out there, just start Passing them out, passing them out, passing them out. I had gowns made. I had t-shirts made. You know, I was selling t-shirts. I was selling t-shirts at the bus company and everything. So I was, I was selling and, you know, you know making, making it work. Hey, everyone. It's just stuck jumping in to say thank you so much for checking out the podcast today. If you dig it, please head over to our website at improvtx.com where you can check out our calendar for all the upcoming shows in Addison, Arlington, Houston, and San Antonio. And don't forget to follow our social media. All links in the description. And with that, back to the podcast. And then uh, I was driving the bus and I saw this advertising for funny, like continuous education. It was teaching how you market your ideas, how you uh, uh, get publicity and all that type of stuff. So I signed up with that course and I met this guy named Jerry Oaks. And Jerry Oaks helped me to get my corporation, get it laid out and everything. So he helped me learn how to promote. And we did a, a market survey where we got some kids because we're going to market, market it to kids. So we bought the kids and put them in and let them do their thing and look at the stuff. But they wasn't feeling it. Then so one kid said if Eddie Murphy was to say this, this would be fun or funny, you know, because Eddie Murphy was hot at that time. Mm-hmm. And I said, OK, I know I can't afford no Eddie Murphy. I said, stand up comedy. So stand up comedy was the way to go to promote this thing. You know, I went to a, a open mic night at the West End. Did you practice before you went, or did you just go? No, I just went up. You know, I had some little jokes that I had, you know, some little street jokes that we tell. So. Yeah. So I just went up because it was open mic night just to get a feel. And I got on stage, did a little joke. When I got <laughs> off the stage, this guy named Christopher said, hey, man, I like your voice. I like your stage presence. There's an organization called the Comedy Gym that teaches you the ins and outs of stand-up comedy. I said, really? Yeah. It was on Greenville. It was on Greenville at the Funny Bone during that time. And I just 
I went up there and signed up. And next thing you know, you know, start working on five minutes worth of material, 15 minutes of material, trying to get to the 45 minutes worth of material. And that was all in 87. So everything 87. Shucky Ducky came before, including the record. Yeah. The single, it came before you even decided to do comedy. Right. That's insane. All of that came first. So did you ever, when you were younger, have an inkling that comedy could be an avenue for you? Or was this like, it opened the door once he said that? No, you know what? Because I, I was shy and I had a lot of stuff that people could talk about me. My teeth was like, I had piano teeth. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was bucked and they had, they, they would spread it all out and everything. Nappy hair, it was just real tight. But, you know, I had a lot of insecurities about myself so i would try to hide or try to not get in people way because i could be the be the topic because i had so many different things going on. so you got bullied so a lot i take it i got bullied a lot yeah and I, I got bullied a, a whole lot a, a whole lot <laughs> i mean i really every school i went to i was a bully and it seemed like thing that i gravitated to the bully yeah or the bully gravitated to me <laughs> for some reason i feel that because i was bullied constantly and the way i dealt with it was comedy i would Find if I can make my bully laugh, he wouldn't beat the crap out of me. Well, the way I dealt with it was running. (laughs) (laughs) So he wouldn't catch me. (laughs) Well, I was fat then, too, so (laughs) that wasn't going to (laughs) happen. So you're getting into comedy. Mm -hmm. You're driving the bus at the same time, right? Yeah. So you're doing both of those. You've made Shucky Ducky a phrase that people know at this point, right? So you get people get on the bus, you say Shucky Ducky, they say quack, quack. Like, it was well-known in well, the Well, the quack-quack, it was, it was just saying Shucky Ducky at the time. It okay. wasn't until they did the rap record that the quack-quack came in. Yeah. Came in that. But now it was just Shucky Ducky, and had a t-shirt, Shucky Ducky. I wish I had an old t-shirt. I got a old t-shirts and stuff, that the first t-shirt that I made. I got that. But uh, it was just that phrase. It was just so, it, people would laugh. It oh, was, yeah. It was so, you know, catchy and cute. Another reason why I wanted to market it, because of the response that they really received. So comedy, where did you start? We had a comedy culture coming in Dallas. We had a repo pizza that was over on Skillman. We had Backdoor Comedy Club. We had the Improv. The Improv was, you know, at that time, Improv had just came up there on Walnut Hill. So we had the Improv. We used to hang out at the Improv all the time, and we watched the guys the poem. I did a couple of contests at the Improv. You know, I came in maybe second or third places. It was just an innocent, grinding, having fun. It wasn't about... Being the star at that time, it's just about having fun and being express yourself as a joke. And the people was enjoying those jokes. And so I was enjoying the high of people enjoying my comedy. So some of the comedians said I was corny, you know, but I loved it when people came up to me and say, hey, man, I enjoyed your, your show. I didn't understand what you said, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoyed it. You work clean, too, right? And I wasn't trying to work clean, but we had to be clean in order to get on the show. We couldn't be raunchy. Because the comedian that was coming after us wasn't raunchy, so we couldn't be raunchy. Well, the comedy gym taught me the technique of making stuff funny without using profanity. But, you know, I, I like to use cuss words every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, know. you curse a little bit. Yeah, little I curse bit. a little you bit. You flavor it up a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Just yeah. a little bit. So when did you get involved at Steve Harvey's uh, comedy club? Buku Ray. No, but this is what happened, though. 87, I was taking the classes. Then in 1988, March 14th, 1988, I did my debut. Then, so I kept on doing, you know, stuff in San Antonio, Austin, you know, do showcases all over. And then, so in 91, we went to Santa Monica, California, the whole group. 
Comedy Jam was the time I want to combine volume. What was Comedy Jam? Comedy Jam was the organization that I joined that teach the ends and outs of comedy. Okay, I got you. So you and a bunch of people from that class. A bunch of us in that class went to charter to go to Santa Monica to do a showcase in California. So we went up there as a group to showcase. When I did my little part, I came off the stage in 91. And the guy said, he was a casting director for Hard Copy. And he said, man, I like you, man, you know, and everything, you know. Pretty funny, I thank you. He said, but I can't do anything for you in, in Texas. You got to come to California. So when I got back to Dallas, I quit my job and moved to L.A. in 91. And it was a struggle up there, too. It was, it was a real struggle because, you know, everybody out there is trying to make it to be a star in L.A. And uh, people were calling me up, saying, Shucky, are you a star yet? And I said, yeah, starving my ass off. <laughs> can't hardly get no food around here. You know, so I... uh but it was brutal because during that time, it was like comedians would talk about comedians, talk about your bad. Like I had a whole lot of insecurities and a whole lot of things that you could pick out on me and talk about me. But I still tried to make it, tried to make it. I think I did a show at Carlos and Charlie's, and I think Michael Collier was the, the MC or the host of that room. And I went up there, and I had on some uh, uh, outfit that matches from the top to the bottom, like it was the two-piece. And I had on some shoes that looked like vanilla ice or some sort like that. And this guy, <laughs> this guy in his audience talked about my shoes so bad and everything, <laughs> oh, and, you know. And I, and I wasn't strong enough to come back on nobody. And then so Michael Collier took the mic, talked about the guy, and then gave me back the mic. And the guy said he still got some messed up shoes, <laughs> 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 you know. So, but so it was a it was an experience there. And then, so things wasn't working as well as I thought it was. Me and a friend of mine who went up there also, he was in the park in uh, Venice Beach Park, sitting there talking about we wanted to be successful, we didn't want to be no failure, and all that kind of deal. And we were drinking some Crown Royal and getting drunk and everything. And then somebody came around in some skates with some uh, tickets to the Price is Right. And I said, all right. I said, since uh, I'm getting ready to leave, go back to Dallas, I said, shoot, at least I can go see the Price is Right before I, I left. And I had those tickets. And, and matter of fact, when I went to Price right. I got on the price what? right and won a car. No way. Yes. No way. Did, now, did you go by your name, Cecil Armstrong? Yeah, Cecil Armstrong. Okay, yeah. I wasn't sure if you shucky ducky did. Uh, no, 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 shucky ducky. And you won a car? I and won a car. Who was the host at the time? Was it? it was Bob Barker. Bob Barker. Bob Barker was the host. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. What kind of car was it? It was a Grand Am. Oh, wow. It was a Grand Am. That is 91 so cool. Grand Am. That is so cool. Red. So, you ended up. Deciding to leave LA. Yeah, because the things wasn't working out. Plus, I had a son. I had a son back in Dallas. So I was kind of missing my son, you know, at the same time. So I wanted to get back to, to him. I used that as an excuse as well. <laughs> and uh, I told everybody I was coming back to, you know, visit for Thanksgiving because I came back to Thanksgiving. But all my stuff was packed up in my car. So I uh, went on back to Dallas. And when I got to Dallas, they were telling me that Steve Harvey had a comedy club, Vukure. And I said, oh, yeah. So I'm down there to, to the club. Gave uh, Steve Harvey my resume, you know, back then we had resumes, so I did it, gave him a resume, and uh, he looked at it and he said, oh, I don't think, so. you know, you're going to make this, you know, you know you've been around them white people around <laughs> make this, but shoot, when I went up, I hit him, and he said, oh man, I'm going to let you host my Apollo night, and I was able to uh, host Apollo night. He really he was instrumental in getting me on the Apollo and a lot of other different things. You know, uh, matter of fact, he gave me my first out-of-state gig. I mean, I had to open up for Paul Mooney in Miami. I, I still got to fly. What was that like? For Paul Mooney? Yeah. Oh, man, Paul Mooney would clear the room. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it was clear. <laughs> I was just, I was overjoyed just to be 
just to be on stage. Just yeah. To, you know. So you got to go on Showtime with the Apollo. Did that come quickly after that? Or was that some more time that went past? No, that was everything started getting on television around about 93, 93, okay. 94. Steve Harvey became the host. Or he was a, a standby host at, on the Apollo. And then he became the permanent host for the Apollo. And he said, I'm going to get you on. He got me on. We went down the, the list of what I was going to perform. And he told me, do this, do this, do this, and everything. And the rest is history. You can watch the clip online now. It's up there. If anyone wants to check it out, go to at the real Shucky Ducky. And you can watch that on YouTube. It'll be awesome. Def Jam come after that? or is that Yeah. All, see, what, what, what's so strange about it was everything was hitting all within that 93, 94 time frame. Okay, Def Jam. Def Jam was hot in 91, 92. It was hot. Really, really, really hot. And I, I wanted to get on. I wanted to get on. <laughs> I wanted to get on. You know, but Steve said he showed the tape to the Def Jam people, and they said they don't think I was going to be that funny. So I said, no. I said, okay. Then, so Bill Bellamy came down. I worked with Bill Bellamy, and I told Bill Bellamy about what I want to do. He said, oh, maybe we can get you on Def Jam. You know, then he said, well, you had to come up to the Peppermint Lounge in New Jersey. So I went up there to the Peppermint Lounge. Ticket, ticket was like $99, round trip almost. So I got me a round trip ticket, went up there to New Jersey, did the Peppermint Lounge, and they liked me. And he told me, I'm going to be on Def Jam. I'm going to be on Def Jam. <laughs> I, was, oh, I was happy. Yeah. And so I came back to Dallas and told everybody I was going to be on Def Jam. And I was uh, on the Tom Jonas show. Told I just whispered in his ear that I was going to be on Def Jam. And he said, can we talk about it? I said, no. Nah, <laughs> and then he kept on bugging me about it. I said, "Yeah, let's talk about it." And then when Def Jam came around, they didn't call me. I said, "Oh, so I called them." And then they sent me a letter say, "We'll call you. Don't you call us?" Oh, jeez, <laughs> <laughs> that's horrible. So, how did you eventually end up getting on? Because you were season mm-hmm. four, episode five. I think. Well, Bill Cosby said something about Def Jam. When he said that, I guess they were scrambling get some more comedians because they were cycling the same comedians over so they uh you know try to get some other influences you know because if you got on there and you didn't make it they'll cut you anyway you know if you didn't do good they'll cut you anyway. and so tina graham who was very instrumental in trying to get me on there she worked her butt off and got me on there and um shoot that, that was history because they didn't think i was gonna do good but i did that first when that, they had that when that green i had that all yeah. that green they said I did good. Yeah, you crushed it. So after you did that, did it blow up? Did you end up going across the nation? Oh, yeah. I started getting a lot of offers, things of that nature, but I still wasn't really, 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 really ready because I only had about maybe 15, maybe 20 minutes worth of material. Wow. You were on TV and you only had 20 minutes worth of material? I'm, I was the internet comedian before <laughs> the internet. <laughs> I was the internet it's comedian so before true. the internet. It's so true. Because I didn't know, uh, uh, and I was getting nervous because, I, I mean, how I was going to play this, I was going to, I couldn't, you know, bluff that. Because my thing was a pushing the phrase. I wasn't trying to be the best comedian. I was just getting exposure for the phrase. I wished I could be behind the scenes and not in front of the scenes because I wanted to sell t-shirts and yeah. the, the record. That's, that was going to be my ticket so I can do it. I didn't want my name to be Chuck Day. So it just kind of happened through serendipity. Well, be, well, because when I first started out, it was Cecil Armstrong, the funniest bus driver in America, better known as Chuck Day. It was too long. Then I say, okay, funniest bus driver in America. But I didn't want all my stuff to be about bus drives, so I wanted to cut that out. <laughs> and then, so I said to myself, what I'm trying to promote? Chuck Ducky. So I'll just be Chuck Ducky. And that's what I did, use the Chuck Ducky. So it ain't be no question asked. And then people were curious. Then I'd be able to explain it. Bam. 
make it work like that, and then I can sell T-shirts. And- so do you look back on that and wish that you wouldn't have done that at this point? Because I know you kind of have like a love-hate relationship with the yeah, name. Yeah, I got a love-hate, but you know, it was like I knew with the name Shucky that a lot of black people was going to back off of it. Most of the bourgeoisie people are going to look at it as, you know, man, you're shucking and jiving type of thing. And then the people that's down earth, they, oh, you know, it's funny. And it's, it's funny. So I know I, I had that kind of like going back and forth. But my goal was to make Shucky Nucky household word, a phrase to sell the T-shirts and stuff like that. So I just took that chance. And, and it stuck with it. Even when I tried to do Cecil Armstrong or either I tried to do something else, People weren't buying it. Uh, they, they, they didn't want to hear this shucky ducky. They want to hear the quack quack. They yeah. They hear that. That's and how good the catchphrase is. That's though. how good the catchphrase yeah. was. It took a life of its own. They loved it. So I just kept I kept on working it. But then I had to try to make it cool. I had to make it where it wasn't corny. Because my, my jokes ain't really corny. Maybe when I first started out, maybe. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, but no, I didn't have no corny jokes. And a lot of people think it's a character. Because shucky ducky is a character. So I said, no. The name might be a character. Mm-hmm. But the jokes is about life, the things that I have experienced. So they really, you know, they just tied in. It's kind of like a contrast. It's like it ain't matching up, so to say. It's just it's contrast. The name is this, and then my jokes is this, and then my look. My look was like a businessman type of a look mm-hmm. or a strong kind of look. Well, it kind of plays into the cool thing. Yeah, because, plays the cool. And that's yeah. what they had to do. And that's what I had to do is make it cool. Make it cool to make it fun. And then uh, uh, I said, okay, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to outgrow this. I'm going to be like, you got the gray hair. I'm going to outgrow this. But I had a way to make it so it could still be relevant today at an old age. It's interesting to me that you, you have that kind of relationship with it where you, you didn't want to be shucky-ducky. But you became Shucky Ducky. Mm-hmm. And like everyone, I mean, somebody says that, like they know who you are. If I say that to somebody, you're a legend, like I said. So like the first time I saw you on stage, I was like, Shucky Ducky. Like I had the same reaction everyone has. And then I'd be like, I saw Shucky Ducky on stage. I was like, you saw Shucky Ducky? Like, so you are a legend. And the name fits well. So I think it's funny that it's one of those things where you kind of have like this, you, you kind of wish you didn't have to go by the name, but it fits so well. Fits so well. It does. It yeah. really fits you. But like you said, you took a lot of shit for it. Yeah, I took a lot. I took a lot of, a lot of it because that name succeeded a lot of people who was very established. Yeah. And a lot of promoters was calling for me to be on those shows, you know, because they wanted to see Shucky Ducky. Some, 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 maybe some jealousy came in. Sort Absolutely. Of but, and then, but there was gunslingers doing it. They were ready to shut you down. I did a show in uh, the Bahamas. I think it was. And those guys was, you know, they were real raunchy. They were real, you know, sex, sex. They was talking. And I was the headline. And so but when I came up, all my shit just died. Because <laughs> <laughs> they don't they took it to that level of sex. And I, and I didn't have those type of type of sex jokes. And so it died. So I told the promoter, I said, man, we got to change this show around. He said, why? He said, you the headline. I said, yeah, but you want me to die every night? <laughs> uh, I got to host this thing. He said, no, no, you're going to change the money. I said, no, we ain't going to change no money. We're going to get to pay the same thing. We're going to pay the, the money because I'm still bringing the people in there. You know, we just got to change the show. Because I want to have a win-win situation mm-hmm. and not know, you know, everybody looking at me because the people were talking about me. And Shucker Douglas shouldn't have been on it. He, 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 he shouldn't have even been on the show. <laughs> you know, so we changed it around and it worked. You know, and uh, I was trying to figure out a way that I can catch up to the headliner to catch up to that part of being a, a strong headline. And then what I had to find out was Richard Pryor talked about his life, you know, but we looked at Richard Pryor as a god. Yes. Somebody, that, you know, the genius you couldn't match up to who Richard Pryor is. But when Kevin Hart came out and started talking about his life, I said, oh, 
I got it then. Kevin Hart, I said, okay, I see it now. I see how you do it. Because even Miss Pat, Miss Pat, she talks about her, her life. Because I didn't think my life was that interesting. It's super interesting. I didn't think it was that interesting. So I said, okay, now that that's the criteria for doing it, then I got a whole lot of stuff I yeah. can talk. You know, I'll just have to come out of my shell to talk about it, to make it funny and, you know, and everything. So when I saw Kevin Hart, what he did, I said, okay. I got to start working it. It's like I said, I ran away a lot of times. When I face some, some obstacles, I'll, something else will come up and make a way for me. So I did a show. After 98, I got into a gospel play. It's called A Fool and His Money. And I was Uncle Ski. And the play did pretty good. We, and the play ran for about six six months. Mm-hmm. And people were liking, you know, liking my acting ability in the play. So another guy came to me with a play. And it was happening uh, like in uh, 2000s, about the 2000s. And it was called When a Woman's Fed Up. And that play ran for almost two years until 9-11. Oh, wow. Yeah, until 9-11 hit. And then when 9-11 hit, play things kind of let down a little bit. Now, was it traveling or something? Yeah, just traveling. Play. And then so after that hit, the circus called. Because the lady that I was doing the play with, they liked our chemistry and they wanted us to be a part of the circus, not necessarily uh, the ringmaster for the circus, but a part of the circus. And so I said, okay, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And I went. Next thing you know, I became the ringmaster. Yeah, so you went in doing comedy, is that right? Or you no, were no, acting? We, we, or? we was going to be, me and this young lady named Patrice Lovely was going to be an act in the circus. And I was really, try- I-, I took it because I was, like I said, my comedy wasn't really standing up like I wanted. I really hadn't really developed to where I need to be a strong, strong headline. And so that's what caused me to go and take the circus gig is I had a show in Saginaw, Michigan. And they get the same thing. I'm popular. They're going to make me the headline. And so I went to the guy and said, hey, man, uh, come out. can I host the show? <laughs> he said, no, man, you can't host the show. you the headliner. You know, you, you, you're the biggest name on the ticket. I said, oh, God. Then he go, you know how you do a, a black guy, you say, are you scared? Oh, no. I said, no, I ain't scared. I ain't, I'm not scared, you know. <laughs> I ain't scared. I was scared. <laughs> and then so, uh, 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 so I said, okay, let me take a, a drink. I'll take a drink. You know, maybe it'll loosen me up. I'd be, you know, be funny on the stage. I took that drink. When I got to the venue, I took a drink. And then the promoter's wife gave me a drink. I was the last person to go up. And when I went up, all three of them drinks hit at the same time. I said the same jokes about I don't know how many times <laughs> I said that joke. I uh, uh, couldn't find my pockets. <laughs> and then I cussed the sound man out, the light man out. I was so embarrassed. I was just I was just embarrassed. And I say, wow. I tried to save face, but I was embarrassed. So when the circus called, I jumped on that. I said, I got to do something so I can get my, my act together, so to say. had to do something. So it, it, it sustained me for for a while. And then that was in Saginaw, Michigan. And I looked at the schedule for the circus. Saginaw, Michigan was nowhere on that. I said, good. <laughs> they rerouted that schedule. Next thing you know, I wind up in Saginaw, Michigan. God dog it. And time I got to the hotel, the housekeeper said, that was the guy that cussed us out. I said, God. So I, I, I learned you got to fit. You can't run from your fears. You got to face them. If you're embarrassed about something, just face it and stand up. And sometimes I, I did a show for some bikers and I was trying to compete with the younger comedians and trying to get raunchy like them. I fell flat on my face. I said, well, that ain't the route. But I didn't run. I stayed there and took the, the abuse. I said, okay, I'll take that abuse because I'm, I'm learning. I'm known for that shucky-ducky phrase. I had to use that shucky-ducky phrase in my show. 
but I had to do it sparingly where it ain't overdone. You know, because when I first started, I did overdo it a little, you know, but it was I was trying to promote a phrase. And so it happened. But now my comedy is so good, funny, down to earth. People can relate to it. I'd be on it. Absolutely. And when you became ringmaster, you did that for a long time, right? I did it five years straight, and then off and on about eight to ten years. And it was a learning experience because he, in being a ringmaster, you got to control the, the audience. You got to look out for the performers. You got to look out for the, the audience. And you got to entertain. We don't have a curtain, so we have to change from one act to next. So we have to do segues to take the tension off the ring while we set up for the next act. Oh, wow. So it was a lot of work. And five years traveling. So when did you decide to give that up and just come back to comedy? Well, I was able to buy me some property and a barbershop. A church. Church, building, yeah. all of that type of stuff. So because if I failed, at least I have something to show for. It. If I fail, I could do hair or some sort like that and still be in entertainment business. You know, I think the reason why I didn't make it big, 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 like I thought I should have, because I always thinking about failure, not to look bad in front of other people. I came up from a unstable. My mom used to move all the time. I mean, we used to move from place to place to place to place, living with uh, relatives and all that kind of stuff. And so all I wanted to do to be successful was to have me a place to stay where I ain't got to move all the time, you know. And basically, that's what it is, to have me a place to stay. So I was able to do that to give me a place to stay where I had to move out. So I was looking at if anything happened, because, you know, you hear about stars struggling or whatever, but I used that as a blanket in case if I didn't make it. I had that to fall upon. So you ended up owning all these things. You made good money. I did pretty good. When yeah. I did my taxes, I said somebody was stealing. <laughs> <laughs> somebody stealing. But because uh, that was making more money. I used to make like, like $10,000 in one show. You know, and that was wow. that was big money to me. Now, wow. now, now, you know, the other people are making more, way more than that. You know, that's a Cat lot Williams, of money, though. Yeah, 10, 000, <laughs> I, was, I feel like I was in heaven. See, I bought my mama a car and everything. Yeah, yeah, I thought I was in heaven. I made that money, but I, when I started buying the property, it gave me something to show for it. That's what I was doing. So you had the church, you had the rental property, the barbershop. barbershop. So during COVID. Whenever that came through, I know that you said that, you know, you couldn't collect rent. People wouldn't come right, to the Right, they shut shop. down. Yeah. yeah, everything shut down, right? Everything shut down. All my streams of income shut down. And so, therefore, I just took that Home Depot card and bought me a lawnmower, blowing weed, and start cutting yards. And that and it was essential because everybody needed those yards, especially the older people needed their yards cut. And so, I did it. And then, you know, I went to a guy's house and... Uh, I said, man, I got this lawn service business because of y'all. He said, yeah. So he thought I had a whole big old crew. <laughs> <laughs> a crew. And it's always just me at this time, you know, building it up. And he said, but man, you're a celebrity. I said, well, I can't eat celebrity. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I need to get it in the yard. And so when I started cutting his backyard, he got on Facebook Live filming me saying, Shucky Ducky is cutting my yard. And I said, yeah, and you're paying celebrity prices too. <laughs> You know, so I said, trying to, you know, so my thing with life is people can put you down, talk about you, but you can turn that joker around. Yeah, I, okay, I can accept it. It's like I had the, the scattered teeth, all of that type of stuff. You can take that stuff. People can hit you with an insult or put you down, but you can turn it. You can make lemonade out of lemons. You just sit back and find the humor in it. If somebody's going to put you down, let them talk, then you find a way you can twist it. 
that'll benefit you, you know, and take the sting out of what they do. I appreciate the hustle. Like you have all these things going on, then it falls because of COVID, you know, it's not your fault. And then you're just like, well, I'm going to do this thing then. Like you never sit still. You always have a plan. You always come up with something. When you're backed against the wall, you're like, I'm going to go try this now. I'm Mm going to go do this thing now. I, I appreciate it because the hustle is real, you know, and it's hard. It, it's hard out here. Like, but you know what is fun? It's not sitting back, not doing anything, but sitting back, okay, how can I, you know, you're back against the wall. How can I get out of this situation? There's a way to get out of a lot of situations. And sometimes we want an easy way out, maybe selling drugs or some sort. Yeah. But uh, even that's a hard hustle. Yeah, it is. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but sometimes you can't let your pride get to you. You got to say, hey, I got to eat this. I got to make it happen. Forget about what other people think. They ain't not paying my rent. They ain't paying my bills. They ain't doing nothing. I got to make this thing happen. And so I go out there, I try to make it happen. And my comedy, I'm good. I'm good at, at comedy. I got good jokes and I got a wealth of stories that have happened to me. I put on that stage. I just didn't open up because I was a loner type of person. I was the type of person that stayed by itself all the time. I didn't hardly mess with nobody. I stayed to myself mostly all the time. I was a loner. So, but, you know, comedy, you got to be. Networking. You got to be networking. Networking be constantly. Yeah. You know, but I don't like to get in nobody's way. I don't like nobody to get in my way. I don't like to mess with nobody. But if you're going to be in this business, you got to have a team around you in order for you to grow. And I think that goes back to the marketing angle of it. Like you right. said, you love the behind the scenes side. Behind the scenes. And then to push something, whether it's the catchphrase, whether it's the name, whether it just be yourself. Like, that's the fun part you really enjoy. So I know we've been working on a couple of things here that hopefully go well. You know what I mean? I got to ask this. What advice would you have for any comedian that's coming up, just starting to get into the game? You know, somebody who's only a year in like myself. What would you say to do? Go out there and just do it. Only way you're going to learn is trial and error. Stand out there and do it. The more you do it, the better you become at it. And then you're going to get tidbits from other comedians, you know, but you have to follow your own advice, find what's comfortable. A comedian might give you some advice. It might be good, but you have to weigh that decision, whether they're saying it's good or not. You can accept it or don't accept it. It's up to you. But the only way is go out there and do it and be yourself. Be yourself. Find your voice. You have to find your voice. Not nobody else's voice. You have to find your voice and be true to who you are. Some people going to like you. Somebody ain't going to like you. Yeah. You're not going to please everybody. But you got to get out there, put yourself in the line of fire. And that's the only way you're going to learn. If you fail at it or somebody boos you, that ain't the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's and not. So, and, 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 you know, comedians say, I ain't never been booed. I don't consider yourself a comedian. I mean, sometimes you got to have a, a downfall somewhere or something. Because every time I got booed or if I got booed or something didn't go well, I understood why it didn't go well. You know, one, it didn't go well because I was drinking. I thought maybe that's going to help me get my nerves up, and that didn't help. I wasn't in control of that. One went up, I was trying to compete with the young comedians and not being myself. That failed. So sometimes I think, man, my jokes are too old. But I, <laughs> but I wrote some good jokes. Some jokes are timeless. And I wrote them in such a way where I can do them anywhere, any city, anywhere, anytime. Any crowd, too. Any crowd. Any crowd. Any crowd. And that because I wasn't a, a prolific writer, I wasn't writing all the time, but I experienced a lot of different things, and I know how to phrase the joke where it would not die. You know, every joke that I got, just about more, every joke I got, just about you can tell it over and over and over and over again. It's like telling a good story, watching a good movie, reading a good book. It's good, yeah, no problem. And then it's the energy that I put in it. When I'm going in half-heartedly and worried about what people are thinking and, and I'm thinking too much, I'm going to have a bad show. If I'm not prepared, I'm going to have a bad show. But if I go in there enthusiastic, like I'm going in there, I'm telling these jokes for the first time. Even though I've told them three or four hundred times. This is my first time telling these jokes. 
have that enthusiasm, so it's going to go real well. Because everybody ain't going to like it. Some people want to hear the joke again. Some people ain't never heard the joke. Some people don't, whatever. You got to get all that stuff out your head and have fun on that stage. Absolutely. And enjoy that stage. And, and the more you do it, the better you become at it. The more you're going to find your voice, find your way, find your style. You, know, you might take a little from some other as you start now. But as you keep growing, this stuff going to drop off. I'm sorry, I'm talking to the legendary Shucky Ducky, and you're giving me advice right now. So <laughs> that was for me specifically. I apologize. No, that was for everyone. Uh, my last question for you Where do you want to be in five years with everything? I know right now that you. Where I want to be in five out. years? Yeah. Smoking a cigarette. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about five years. I don't, I don't know. To me, life is not a journey, life is a song and a dance. So I want my song to be bigger. I want my dance to be longer. I just want to have fun. You know, five years now. Do a movie? Yeah, I want to do a movie. I want to do. A You've been in a movie. I've been in a movie. Yeah. yeah, I want to do movies. I want. I want to do a a movie where I'm starring in the movie, and it's my movie. I produced it and I directed it or whatever. I put up the money for it or whatever. There's a lot of stuff I would like to do. But tell you the truth though, Duck, I really accomplished. It. I wanted to make Shucky Duck a household word. I yeah. really accomplished that. I looked at my timeline paper, and that's what is on that paper, making Shucky Ducky a household word. And I did that. I made enough money to buy a little this and a little that. If I leave today, I can say I'm very successful because I made that word popular. And it, and it pops up everywhere. It took a life of its own, and it pops up <laughs> everywhere. And, and, and what, I'm going to tell you what really made me proud. I was at the sports bar, and DJ say, Shucky Ducky's in the house. <gasps> You know, like that. Well, you know, everybody say quack, quack, you know, like that. And this guy came up to me. Now, he's the sports boy, hard dudes. Guy come up to me and say, hey, man, can I take a picture with you? Man, I'm going to take a picture with dudes, you know. <laughs> but, he, but he was so enthusiastic as a fan, and he liked that phrase, and he liked the way I did the comedy. He wanted to take a picture. That makes me feel good. Yeah. That makes me feel good. I'm, I'm telling you, as, as a person who lived in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, to hear Shucky Ducky for the first time, when Herman Cain said it, like, and that brought, like, and he stole it. I <laughs> know he totally stole it. Who was the other one? Booker T. Said Booker he, T. <laughs> Booker T. I'm gonna tell you somebody who got it first, though. Who stole it first? Who? Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones. That's he did insane. it. In the, he did it in the juke joints. He did it in the juke joints. He said, "Shugga dugga." He had Tom Lowe say, "Shugga dugga." Go, go high. Oh my God. Doom, doom. But I was, you know, I, I, but I was, you know, I was flattered. I was really flattered. You know, people say, you ought to go after them. You know, I don't really, I want to go after them. If they're doing merchandise, I want to go after them. But, <laughs> uh, but stop them from saying it. I said, it's the hot new phrase in 1986. It's hot new fun to say. You shuck it that in your today. So That's to shut somebody down from saying it, you know, I would be feeding the purpose. And then whether people shit on me or, or praise me, the word is disappointment or excitement. So I got some disappointment on the side. <laughs> I got some sight on the side. And you're still saying the word, so I'm still. They say, ain't no bad publicity. <laughs> oh, you get the lane right. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Well, with that said, I think we have to promote the show on the 29th of March. It's 8 o'clock. That's a Wednesday night at the Arlington Improv. And it's going down. We're going to have Barbara Carlisle. We're going to have Vince D. Think about Q. I'm getting trying to get Q to come oh, in yeah. as well. So we're going to have a good time and enjoy ourselves. You know, I'm going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> if they don't come, I'm still going to be there. It's yeah. going to be great. It's I went to the good. last show and I had a blast. And that was the first time I saw Hamburger, too. And that was a that's lot of fun. That's my boy. That's yeah. my running buddy right there. Yeah, Hamburger's great. I, I absolutely loved his joke, so he was great. Yeah, well, Shucky, I really appreciate it. I mean, Cecil Armstrong, <laughs> Mr. Shucky Ducky, 
All right. Thank, thank you, you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, with that said, please support local comedy in any way, shape, or form that you can. And we will see you on the next one. And there it is. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. If you enjoyed it, please head over to ImprovTX.com to check out all our upcoming shows at the Addison, Arlington, Houston, and San Antonio clubs. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the other podcasts on the ImprovTX Comedy Network. We have The Act Out. From open mics to the big stage, comedians tell us the story they've made, where I talk to comedians from all over and chat about their journey this far. Also, check out the Black Dog Retro Arcade podcast. Straight from the arcade, we talk about how our favorite games were made. That's right, we're talking all that video game goodness. And finally, we have Quackin' Up, a storytelling podcast where we pick suggestions from a hat and tell stories based upon them. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Please check out our social media, all links in the description. And with that, we'll see you on the next one.